0: That Triathlon Show 270. Hey, what's up everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by ScientificTriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael, and on today's episode I interview Dr. Richard Ferguson from Loughborough University. Richard's main research interest is in the area of blood flow restricted training and its impact on skeletal muscle adaptations and peripheral peripheral vascular adaptations. So we will discuss his research findings on this topic and how it may relate to endurance athletes in the interview to come. Before that I have a quick house cleaning item which is that the survey that I have mentioned on a couple of Q&A episodes at least in the last couple of weeks for that triathlon show, how I can improve the podcast is still up and running. You can find it on scientifictriathlon.com in the podcast menu, or you can go directly to scientifictriathlon.com forward slash survey. This will probably be my last reminder to take the survey, so don't put it off, because if you do, then you will probably not remember later. So if you have an interest in completing it and helping me make the podcast better for you and for the majority of the listeners, then please do so. It is really helpful, and I want to say a massive thank you to the almost 330 people that have already done so. That's amazing. And also before the interview, of course, we need to thank our sponsors, Roca. Roka's wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, sunglasses and other top of the line products are trusted by top level world class athletes like Javier Gomez, Lucy Charles Barclay, Flora Duffy, Mario Mola, Katie Zafiris and many many others at the absolute peak of endurance performance. There is exceptional research and development as well as attention to detail put into every product to make you as fast as possible and that is why so many top athletes choose Roca. and when it comes to products like the eyewear category and prescription glasses that of course are not something that is necessarily used to go faster in races the same applies but simply to make the product experience and feel of using the product as great as possible you can get 20% off any roca order with the promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash tts and thank you to zen8 the zen8 swim trainer will help time crunched athletes get more consistency in their swim training when there's no time to get to the pool or as things are right now during the pandemic in many parts of the world pools being closed for many of us with the Senate Swim Trainer, you can, from the comfort of your home, improve your technique, power, and stamina. It teaches you to activate the core through the instability element in the swim bench, and it forces you to get into a high elbow catch position. It's not big and bulky. You can deflate it and fold it up and uh, stuff it somewhere uh, and keep it small when not using it. And the price point, especially with our special discount code, is similar to a pair of running shoes learn more on zen8swimtrainer.com and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on zen8swimtrainer.com forward slash tts now without any further ado let's get into the interview with richard ferguson welcome to that triathlon show richard how are you doing this morning
1: i'm really good thank you very much yourself
0: yeah, uh, not bad at all. Excited to discuss the topics that we have in store for today. But before we do, can you start by introducing yourself uh, to the audience and uh, tell us a bit more about what you do and your background?
1: Yeah, yeah sure. So I'm Richard Ferguson. Uh, I'm a senior lecturer uh, in exercise physiology here at Loughborough University in the UK. Uh, I've been here at Loughborough for oh, about 13 years now, uh, having previously been up at Strathclyde in uh, Glasgow, uh, I did my undergraduate degree in sport and exercise science in the, in the uh, early nineties in the University of Birmingham. Uh, stayed there for another couple of years to do an MPhil uh, and then went to Manchester Metropolitan University uh, in Cheshire in England to do my uh, PhD. Uh, at that time, I was fortunate enough to uh, do a little bit of uh, traveling. So I went, I spent a few months at the free university in Amsterdam to do some uh, intense uh, single muscle fiber work, which was a little bit of my PhD work. And then I also had the real exciting opportunity to spend a year at the August Krogh Institute in uh, Copenhagen, uh, Den- Denmark, working with uh Jens Bangsbo and, at the time, uh, Peter Krustrup. And uh, we did quite a few studies using the sort of the famous single leg knee extensor exercise model and stuff like that, which was uh, an amazing opportunity. Op- Opportunity and, uh, Copenhagen's a superb city. Uh, since then, I've been, uh, you know, researching quite a wide range of sort of areas in exercise physiology. Uh, but I guess my current interests are, you know, the the sort of finding novel methods to enhance the adaptation to training. Uh, so, you know, we all train and do exercise and whatever, whatever it is, but, you know, we're, we're interested in finding these, these novel methods that, that may sort of give you a little bit more to your training to, you know, perhaps improve performance a little bit more, you know, we can talk about the 1% here, here and there. So it's just really looking at those sort of A bit of mechanistic work to try and understand the the mechanisms of these adaptations to see if we can uh, improve performance using various techniques.
0: And uh, we'll get into those topics uh, in detail a bit later, but maybe you can just uh, tell the listeners what they are specifically that you're looking at right now and just in a sort of uh, one paragraph summary of them
1: so the the main intervention is which yeah you're right we'll talk about that in a minute is is this method of blood flow restriction so we're using a blood flow restriction technique to to uh you know enhance the adaptive response to training uh, and you know those. This, this blood flow restriction could be used in various types of exercise, whether it's resistance exercise, or we'll go into detail the sprint interval exercise. But that's that's the main topic of uh, of uh, focus at the moment. And the interesting thing about blood flow restriction is that uh, you know some of the focus can be on you know elite performance or, or well trained performance in athletes. But I think the exciting sort of role of, of BFR is that it can also be used in rehabilitation and, and uh, sort of you know helping injured athletes or injured people or people that you know can't perform intense e- exercise. It can be used used in that sort of sphere to improve the uh, rehabilitative responses and that process.
0: Mm, yeah, that's extremely interesting. Mm. Well, before we get into specifically blood flow, blood flow restricted training, let's discuss a little bit, uh, the theoretical background that we need to know to understand sort of the work you're doing and uh, maybe from the perspective of. Different adaptations that we get to endurance training, and and also perhaps going into which ones might be more limiting than others in different demographics.
1: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, a lot of my work is is really focused on endurance performance, which is why we're having this conversation with you, uh, which is really exciting. And we can we can go back to some classic work from you know the the great physiologists Ed uh, Ed Coyle and Mike Joiner, and think about this this Joiner and Coyle model of endurance. power, performance power, and obviously the main determinants of that are the aerobic contribution to endurance exercise, which is determined by things like VO2 max and lactate threshold and things like that, and also the aerobic energy contribution to to, um, uh, this this performance power output or this performance VO2. And underpinning those, those sort of main determinants of say VO2 max and lactate threshold and critical power and these really interesting things are the fundamental building blocks of, of muscle. So whether that's, you know, capillary supply, mitochondrial content, muscle fiber composition and the central components such as cardiac output, blood flow capacity, hemoglobin content and stuff. So these are all the underpinning physiological determinants of endurance performance. Now, my particular focus using the blood flow restricted exercise is on capillary supply and to a certain extent, mitochondrial content and function. So these real important determinants of skeletal muscle function, and skeletal muscle endurance capacity if we have a high capillary supply we can deliver lots of oxygenated blood and that feeds into you know uh, higher lactate thresholds higher critical powers and you know better endurance performance so what we've got to understand in the first instance is is you know these these sort of physiological physiological determinants are obviously you know primarily driven by you know um genetics you're you're born with a, you you are predisposed to having a high capillary supply or a high a high you know sort of mitochondrial content so you know we don't want to I'm not going to get into that but of course they are they are adaptive they are plastic you you can you can adapt these physiological parameters and we need to try and understand the 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 mechanisms of, of adaptation are really complex you know they they're beyond you know even i don't understand all the intricacies of of these adaptive processes but if we have a sort of if we think about endurance exercise the actual process of exercise is a physiological stressor so we we need to understand the different physiological stresses that occur when you perform an endurance bout of exercise, whether it's a two hour ride on the bike or a three hour jog or a, or a high intensity interval training session. And these physiological stresses include things like changes in metabolism. So there are changes in the metabolic profile processes going on within, within the muscle. There are changes in blood flow within the, within the blood vessels of, of the muscle. So the capillary supply and, and, and so on. And, yeah, there are, there's mechanical stresses. So the mechanical stretch of the muscle and changes in sort of calcium sort of gradients and calcium co- concentrations. So these are all physiological stresses that, that sort of transmit a cascade of, of signals that, you know, switches on the adaptive process. So if we pick on capillary supply for a moment, the main stimulus for capillary growth is what we call shear stress so shear stress is simply the the what's well, not simple it's very complex but is is basically the 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 force of the blood moving along the surface of the blood vessels and the surface of the blood vessels is lined by endothelial cells and these have sensors and receptors on the surface of the endothelial cells that detect this this force of the blood move, moving over it, and that sort of switches on a cascade of sensors and, and, and signals involving enzymes such as ENOS, so endothelial nitric oxide synthase, which is an important enzyme for you know um, you know capillary and, and, and blood flow capacity, and this all cascades onto other molecules such as vascular endothelial growth factor, which are the key signals that stimulate capillary growth. So if we understand these these molecular and cellular signals, we can find ways of perhaps manipulating them, whether it's with training or it's with nutritional supplementations or with other sorts of stimuli. Hypoxia might be another one. We can find ways to switch these signaling components on to a greater or a lesser extent and enhance the adaptive response to training.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a really good overview. And just to state the obvious here, but uh, the reason that we would want capillary uh, growth in the first place and uh, high capillary densities, uh, better blood supply and oxygen, well, oxygen supply to, to the muscles uh, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, sure. Metabolism. Yeah, sure.
1: And 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 you know to to give you an, an, an example a really nice study that we published uh, a couple of years ago with a with a PhD student Emma Mitchell. We showed an incredible correlation between critical power and critical power is a really important determinant of endurance performance. I don't want to get into the whole critical power FTP debate, but they're kind of similar. And your triathletes all love the FTP and things like that. But there's a, there's an incredible correlation, almost perfect correlation between FTP. Well, well, critical power and the number of capillaries that surround your type one fibers. So the more capillaries you've got, the better your critical power. So, you know, it's really important. So if we can grow more capillaries, then, you know, by definition you should improve endurance performance however and this is the sort of really interesting thing where you know which which started this discussion and this debate about about um, blood flow restriction if you are already trained so if you're already a highly trained athlete there's plenty of evidence to demonstrate or, or suggest that if you simply increase your training volume it's really hard and really difficult to improve or enhance the physiological adaptation so what we say there is that and this is going back you know to the 70s and and, and the 60s in that if you already have a high capillary supply then to increase that further is really really difficult and just by increasing the volume of training doesn't necessarily translate to an increase in factors such as capillary supply. So there's what we call a reduced plasticity or an attenuated response to training. And this is shown at the molecular level as well. There's some really great work coming out from David Bishop's lab and um, and the McConnell lab in, in the States and in Australia, where if you sort of either compare a trained and an untrained group of subjects, if you're trained, your sort of molecular response to training is dampened. You don't get those changes in in sort of the gene response or the signal response to a single bout of exercise. And that's the case for angiogenesis. That's certainly the case for mitochondrial growth. So, you know, we've got a problem there. If you're already well-trained, to get a greater adaptation is really difficult. Now, I know, you know, coaches are really clever and, and I will concede that I'm not a coach. So I'm, I'm coming at this from a scientific perspective and I, need, and I need to sort of admit that. So, you know, coaches have been you know, modifying training and, and, and doing really cool sort of training in, in, in interventions for hundreds of years incorporating high intensity interval training sprint interval training and things like that so i get that and i totally respect that where we came from with this with this blood flow restricted work is are there ways of getting more bang for your buck in response to you know training for highly trained athletes and that was a sort of you know a, a phrase coined by my my collaborator on this Steve Ingham and i, I don't know if you know Steve through the supporting champions uh, sort of web, web website but he was really sort of you know very much involved in in the in the work that w- that we did in relation to this so
0: just before getting into the blood flow restricted training in more detail uh, when we talk about the capillary supply can, is there any data or any knowledge about how important that is uh, compared to other some other adaptations that you mentioned there when you listed them for example uh, the cardiac output or, or or any other things that you you might want to bring up do we have any sort of uh, knowledge about what the relative importance of of that is uh
1: well i i I couldn't put any sort of numbers on it because you know i I think that that, that's really hard i i think they're all equally important i mean you know i think one of the main determinants of vo2 max for example is cardiac output so you know unless you've got a high cardiac output then you know you you're going to be limited to having a, a you know a sort of limited vo2 max because we know for sure that the you know the 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 blood flow capacity of of a skeletal muscle essentially out outstrips the capacity for cardiac output so it, you know going back to the classic work of the 80s from Bengt Saltine's lab in 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 Copenhagen where they used this single leg knee extensor exercise model i know it's not you know it's not particularly well it it can translate to, to to real life but what that work demonstrated is that the blood flow capacity of skeletal muscle is absolutely huge but that those experiments were done in a very very small skeletal muscle group you know the three kilograms of 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 the quadriceps if you sort of scale that up to a whole body performing Intense exercise where you might have, I don't know, 35, 4, 40 kilograms of muscle doing, doing work. Your cardiac output can't deliver enough, enough blood to feed all that, all that muscle. So certainly cardiac output plays a really important role for parameters such as VO2 max. But e- equally, capillary supply and mitochondrial content are really important determinants of, of things like lactate threshold and critical power the ability to deliver the oxygen remove the metabolic substrates that that cause fatigue and things like that so i think all of them are equally important across you know the 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 the, the, the sphere of endurance performance and if we take hemoglobin content you know we i, I don't want to get into the whole epo debate but what that did was that increased red blood cell count increased hemoglobin content and you saw huge increases in performance so you know you can you can pick and choose which physiological system is important but i think across the board of endurance performance they're all equally important Mm.
0: and and you you mentioned there about the the force of the blood flow being a, a signal or a stimulus for the receptors on the endothelial cells so does that mean that uh, more intense training is the thing that uh, that starts this cascade of signaling. Generally speaking, ahead of low intensity training, when it comes to specifically those receptors that you mentioned and the capillary supply.
1: That's a that's a really great question, and there's some brilliant work being done again in Copenhagen uh, with Ulva Helsten and and Lasse Gleeman. Gle- and I think, I think the primary stimulus as I said, for, sheer, for, and for capillary growth is sheer stress. So whether intense, short bouts of exercise provides that, we're not quite sure. Now, the blood flow restricted exercise that we'll talk about in a minute challenges that to a certain extent. But I think in terms of capillarization, the message seems to be that longer sessions of moderate intensity exercise is key. So we're talking about high volume, low intensity work, simply because it, it's a duration effect. You can have high rates of sheer stress during high intensity exercise, but it's only for short periods of time. Whereas if you're having this long period of sheer stress during, say, you know, a two, three, four, six hour bike ride, that seems to be the primary stimulus so it's a volume thing in terms of capillarization. So this is where the whole story of you know get your get your good base miles in over the winter and long distances, high volumes, not so much intensity. That is seems to be the key for capillarization. If we think about um, mitochondrial function and mitochondrial biogenesis the work coming out of David Bishop's lab, again, asks a really important question because in terms of mitochondria, there's, there's two sides to the mitochondria coin. You can either have more mitochondria. So in terms, you know, thinking about mitochondrial content or your mitochondria that you have can work better. Their function is more effective. They're more efficient and, 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 and so on. And, the story seems to be that if you're thinking about mitochondrial content, so the number of mitochondria in your muscle, training volume seems to be the key determinant. So again, high volume, low intensity, that drives the the, the increase in mitochondrial content. Whereas exercise intensity, so high intensity interval exercise, high intensity exercise, seems to be the key factor in driving training induced changes or improvements in mitochondrial function so you're you're making you know there's more enzymes that 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 turn over ATP or create A- ATP in in terms of mitochondrial respiration so you've got to balance these two sides to, two sides of the coin improving you know driving the increase in volume but also using you know high intensity work to to change function and that's the challenge for coaches to sort of find this balance of uh, of 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 challenging those particular systems to improve performance
0: yeah and uh well, David Bishop uh, is somebody who I've interviewed in the past on that specific topic on uh how to get better mitochondrial content and and function and uh, yeah, what he said was exactly what you already said, but that's something that the listeners can go back and listen to to that episode with him yeah and it's he brilliant stuff he He seemed to say that as well that uh, like in the grand scheme of things the mitochondrial content would be more important to primarily focus on so so he was very much in the camp of. Uh, low-intensity, uh, high-volume of training being important. Absolutely. But let's get on to the blood flow restricted training now then. So so tell us a bit more about what that is, how it works, and, uh, and so on.
1: <laughs> okay. So, I mean, blood flow restriction has been around for – centuries in 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 many respects and all the classic physiology has uh, has you know physiological investigation of of muscle function and cardiac function and cardiovascular function have always in the past used some element of blood flow restriction to to understand you know basic muscle physiology but in terms of training it's it's been around you know for I'd say 50 or so 50 or so years and there's different methods to do it. So the classic work, you would put your legs inside a, a hyperbaric chamber and increase the pressure in this hyperbaric chamber, and that would reduce blood flow. But clearly, that's not practical of, uh, at all. So the, the current work has, has been using effectively blood pressure cuffs or tourniquets that are, that are put around the sort of, the, you know, the, the exercising limb. So, of course, you can only do the blood flow restricted exercise on on on, on limbs. Um, and effectively, what you do is, is is you put the cuff around the limb, and it might be the upper thigh, and you inflate that cuff to a given pressure. And there's a big question mark over what is the best pressure, what is the optimal pressure to use. And you inflate the cuff, and you perform the exercise, now, what the cuff does, it effectively it, it, it prevents venous return. So the blood flow doesn't return back to the heart, but it reduces arterial inflow. So it reduces the flow of blood into the exercising limb. So you get an element of hypoxia and other metabolic uh, changes within the muscle. And you perform the exercise. And I think the important thing to, to, to say in this respect, before I get onto the sprint training is the exercise can be performed at a low intensity. So the classic work was using um, low, low load resistance exercise. So the original work was based around muscle strength and muscle hypertrophy. And In normal situations, if you want to increase muscle strength and muscle hypertrophy, you have to lift heavy loads, so 70% of one rep max and so on. Whereas with blood flow restricted exercise, you can perform the exercise at a relatively low load, even as low as, you know, 20% one rep max. And you perform the sets and reps with the blood flow restriction, and effectively you get the same gains in strength and hypertrophy as you would with high load resistance training so there's a good body of evidence and there's some great work from all over the world in, in the states and in, in australia and, and and canada and, and uh, 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 scandinavia that are doing some really cool work in the hypertrophic side of things there's less work in terms of endurance exercise or endurance performance uh, and we started to do some work with a PhD student, Julie Hunt, looking at you know the the vascular adaptations to blood flow restricted exercise, and we showed that you know some really nice changes in in arterial function and arterial structure. So the blood flow capacity of the muscle it, that is increased with blood flow restricted training.
0: So can you talk a bit about the mechanisms uh, a bit more about the mechanisms when it comes to how it works in in endurance training?
1: Absolutely. So I think going back to what I said earlier and considering these these main stresses of exercise that that are sort of, you know, sort of turned on or switched on when performing exercise. What we think happens with blood flow restricted exercise and and whether it's with resistance type exercise or with endurance type exercise, because there's some, you know, really good work coming out of Scandinavia where they've used cycling at at low intensities. What it seems to do, it it, it seems to enhance or, or, you know, improve or enhance these, these particular signals that are associated with adaptation so if we take hypoxia for, for example hypoxia is it's complex but it's 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 one of the key determinants or one of the key signals for capillary growth there's a few redundant components to it but hypoxia is can be quite important for capillary growth and of course when you put the cuff on the leg you induce an element of hypoxia so there's a greater level of of sort of hypoxia within the muscle Equally, you know there are other signals that are enhanced when you when you uh, have the cuff on the thigh and that might might be a greater metabolic stress which switches on those 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 metabolic signals for adaptation there's greater increases in in what we would call reactive ox- oxygen species so the sort of the uh, oxidative stress associated associated with exercise so again blood flow restriction can target to a certain extent these important stresses and these important signals for adaptation.
0: And what would be a typical protocol, training protocol for using it?
1: So, you know, we, that's a really great question because a lot of this work is, is really laboratory based and, and, and I think this is where we need to go in the future in, in making it more applicable to athletes. So I think, you know, as long as your audience, you know, takes it for granted at the moment that we're talking about laboratory-based work and I appreciate, you know, trying to get it into the field is 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 a big question. But if we take, uh, you know, an endurance type exercise, what you do is is you would you would be on a bike and you would strap the tourniquet or the or the cuff around your leg. And you would perform your exercise at a relatively low load, and that might be you know moderate intensity exercise below lactate threshold or below ftp for for example, so it's not too taxing and you might perform you know relatively moderate interval type sessions, so let's say you know two minutes on three minutes off or or something like that, and you would you could have the cuff on you would inflate the cuff just before you start your interval bout and perform perform your exercise with the cuff inflated. And then you would just simply perform your intervals as, as you would. Now, whether you release the cuff during each rest period, that's another important question. The sensation that you feel in the muscle is is quite substantial. You know, you do get this burning sensation, this discomfort sensation, but it just feels like as if you're performing, you know, a, a really hard, intense bout of exercise, but your legs aren't moving because what you're doing is if you have the cuff on in that interval uh, p- uh, uh, period, you are trapping all those fatigue related metabolites within the muscle so they can't get flushed out so you know there's a greater lactic acidosis and uh, you know greater content of of, of these fatigue causing metabolites so you know it's 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 you release the cuff and then you get this massive rush of blood flow into the legs and it kind of feels quite quite nice and then you would inflate the cuff again and perform your next bout so at the moment it's 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 you know it's relatively sort of straightforward of just inflating the cuff performing your exercise bout and then releasing the cuff at the appropriate time
0: yeah yeah but i can see why why this is very much lab based still to this day especially given that the actual pressure is uh, something that is still Uh, debated and being investigated i mean
1: yeah you're right i mean we have tried it in the field you know we have done some very simple uh you know sort of pilot work uh where we've had people running around a 400 meter track so these are 400 meter runners in this case and and they run around the track doing their sort of you know 300 meter sets and they would decelerate at the end of the set and they'd run to the (laughs) to the end of the track and we'd be waiting there with our blood pressure cuffs they would lie down right next to us and then we would hoik these blood pressure cuffs around their thigh and inflate them to whatever pressure and then leave them there for a couple of minutes, you know, for, for, you know, for a couple of minutes with the cuff inflated, deflate the cuff, they'd have another little sort of recovery period walking back to the start line and then repeat that 300 meter sesh. So, you know, we are trying to do it in the field uh, but of course the practical side of having these blood pressure cuffs or whatever is is you know the is the limiting factor
0: mm. yeah and uh, and in the protocol you mentioned with uh, the cycling and the moderate intensity intervals like how for how long would you pre- be performing that work and and how many times per week in the research studies that has been done is this done
1: again a, a, you know a great question and uh, i think each session So each individual session off the top of my head, you know, you might be doing, you might do three sets of five intervals, uh, you know, a typical high intensity interval session. And that might be, I don't know whether you do it 20, 30 minutes or so, and then the warm up and warm down either side of that. So, you know, it might be a 30, 40 minute session of two minute intervals with two minute recovery sets of five and then do that three, three, three times. So it's that, you know, classic time efficient interval type training, uh, that's, you know, that, that is, uh, can be quite important, uh, for, for athletes in terms of the times, times per week. Again, you know, that, that, that is, that is a great unknown. The, the studies to date might be doing, in terms of endurance type uh, protocols might be two to three times per week. Okay. So you might do two sessions or three sessions. Um, But again, whether that's optimal or not, we just don't know. So we're halfway through a study following on from some of the previous work where we are doing it twice a week for about six weeks. But it's so intense. It's it's really really hard training. This is the sprint interval work that I'll talk about in a minute. It's really hard. So trying to find that balance between adaptation and I don't know maladaptation or overreaching, whatever you want to call it, is really is really difficult because it's such an intense stimulus. Because we're wanting to get more bang for our buck, as it were. Finding that balance is, uh, is, is really, really tough. So, you know, we would, we we would recommend you you do it at the right time of the training season. It wouldn't be a year long type thing. You would build it into your mat, to your, to your macro cycles at the appropriate time of the season.
0: Mm. And and when it comes to the actual outcomes, the performance outcomes and adaptations, what do we know about that so far? What what sort of magnitudes in performance changes or adaptations are we looking at?
1: Well, we've we've seen you know not 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 just us but other colleagues have seen you know quite significant improvements in in outcome measures such as uh, VO two max. Uh, we showed a very slight improvement in critical power uh ex you know exercise you know time to exhaustion you know these classic laboratory tests that you know whether they're translatable to real life is another question but huge improvements in time to exhaustion tests so you know how long you can go for until you have to stop um um changes in economy changes in efficiency within the muscle so you know that the, there's a there's a good body of evidence to suggest that Performance, endurance-based performance parameters are improved. If we talk about my sprint interval training, uh, our sprint you interval just training.
0: Want, just one, one follow-up on that. Yeah, sure, then, that sure, is sure. In, in well-trained athletes, uh, usually.
1: So again, <laughs> that's that's uh, that's a difficult question to to answer because there isn't enough data. In really well-trained athletes, a lot of these studies are done in you know sort of healthy students, as as you, as, you, as you'd expect. You know, some good VO two maxes up to you know high fifties and, and 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 high sixties in terms of uh, VO two max mills 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 per kilogram. So you know whether whether these are seen in very well-trained athletes, we just haven't got the data because doing these kind of studies in these populations is 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 really quite quite hard but i think i think you know my gut instinct is that they would translate to improved performance in well-trained athletes
0: right yeah and uh, please go on and uh, describe the the sprint interval uh, training combined with uh, bfr
1: yeah sure so i mean what i'll prelude that first is is that we did see huge gains here so in terms of vo2 max we saw a, an improvement in of about five percent in two separate studies so you know five percent improvement in vo2 max is is quite substantial and these were well-trained athletes so this sprint interval training um exercise it was a bit unusual and and i'm, and I'm going to sort of you know sort of admit that it is a bit nuts because what we didn't want to do, so it, it, this was the conversation that we had at the start of um, Connor Taylor's PhD. You know, Connor Taylor did his PhD with us with Steve and he was funded by the English Institute of Sport and Connor's now working at uh, team Ineos. So he's kind of worked his way up to, you know, working with sort of, you know, the, the top end athletes. And it just started with a conversation that, The blood flow restricted exercise combined with low intensity was very exciting, was was very interesting. But there was a thought that, you know, does that low intensity sort of component compromise the overall training stimulus? So we wanted to maintain the sort of very high intensity work that that, that athletes, you know, do do. So what we did is is we just simply took the, the classic a repeated sprint model. So that is effectively 30 second maximal sprints that are repeated, you know, every four and a half minutes or so. So it's your classic Wingate sprint, 30 second maximal all out with a four and a half minute recovery. And then you repeat that four times. And what we did, because we did a lot of pilot work, we couldn't have the, the cuff on during the sprint. It was simply impractical. And you know the, the subjects weren't able to perform the sprint. So what we did is, is we we used what's what's what we're calling a post exercise blood flow restriction. So these, the subject or, or the athlete would would get on the bike and they would perform an all out sprint. They would then jump off the bike onto a, an adjacent couch, and we would quickly put the cuffs on around the leg. We would inflate the cuff to about 120 millimeters of mercury. So it's not particularly high, but it's enough to, you know, uh, know, sort of restrict the blood flow. And we would leave that on for a couple of minutes. We would then release the cuff. They would have another two minute recovery, just lying on the couch and then jump back on the bike and do another sprint. And we would repeat that four times. So it is, you know, it is a an extreme out of exercise it, it is an extreme training stimulus uh it's hard <laughs> uh, the subjects you know are working really hard and when the cuff is on and they're not doing anything they're in that recovery period there is a you know there is an element of discomfort you know i i i, I can't lie but the you do get desensitized to it you do get used to that to that sort of you know burning sensation and like I said to you know to a lot of the the subjects and the athletes that come in, it's it's no different to you know the burning sensation that you feel at the at the end of a really hard sprint or a really hard effort when you're doing your interval training. Anyway, you're just not on the bike, you're just not doing anything. You've you've done your sprint, and you've got the cuff on. So that was our sort of um, our training intervention, and we did a couple of studies with uh, Connor Taylor's uh, uh, PhD. And the first one, it was a, an acute study to look at the sort of the physiological responses and the molecular responses to this type of training. And we showed quite nicely, it's, it was quite convincing that this type of interval training, so this type of blood flow restricted t- training, enhanced the signals for capillary growth. So we, fo- we saw an increased signal for shear stress and an increased signal for hypoxia compared to the sprint interval training alone. So the only difference was the blood flow restriction. So we think that we were switching on the signals for capillary growth to a greater extent. And these were in reasonably well-trained athletes. They had an average VO2 max of about 65, 66 mils per kilogram. So, you know, they were pretty useful. So we followed up with that with a training study where we did four weeks of training. It was progressive and it was twice a week. So they were doing this, these four sets of sprint intervals with or without blood flow restriction twice a week for four weeks. And that's where we demonstrated our 5% improvement in VO2 max, which was, you know, sort of quite exciting. Now the and was, f- and, oh, and on, sorry.
0: What, what, what was the the corresponding improvement in the group that did not do blood flow restricted training? Was there a significant uh, difference between the two?
1: This was really interesting. There was no improvement in VO two max. So, in already well, reasonably well trained athletes, there was no improvement in VO two max with just sprint interval training. Hmm.
0: And five percent, yeah, as you say, that's very substantial.
1: It is. Yeah. However, so, you know, we've got to be critical of our own work. What we didn't show was any change in sort of, we used a time trial before we had a time trial performance. Now that didn't improve. So, you know, I understand that it's, we're seeing changes in, in physiological function, but whether that translates to performance, is still an important question because our our it was a 15 kilometer time trial so whether it was the right thing to do or not that's another question but we didn't see improvements there so you know there's still a lot of unknown questions to uh, to address in terms of actual performance
0: yeah and so so where other than that what are the other sort of future directions in terms of research to be done and also on the practical and applied side of things where do you see? This going in the next few years.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm still interested in sort of understanding the, the mechanistic aspects of of this type of training, whether it's sprint interval training or other types of um, blood flow restricted exercise. So we followed up that study with a, with with another with another PhD uh, uh, student to, to to see if we actually induce capillary growth. So we we showed in the original. Study, you know, that in, in the acute exercise study, that we are switching on the signals for capillary growth. But although we saw changes in, in VO2 max and, and other aspects, you know, we didn't see changes in capillary growth when we took muscle biopsies before and after the training. So we want to follow up on that to see if we actually, you know, if, if these signals do actually translate into physiological adaptations because that's that's what we're you know suspecting does happen but whether it's whether the training stimulus was too much or it wasn't long enough or the it was too intense or anything like that that's that's what we need to try and to you know to try and understand and to try and optimize the nature of the blood flow restricted exercise to see if we can induce those physiological changes and then hopefully translate those to performance, because at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is performance. And of course, your audience might be thinking, "Well, if it doesn't improve performance, then why, why bother?" But we still haven't, you know, sort of optimized the nature of the actual training in in intervention to see if it works. Mm. And of course, the other thing we're wanting to try and do is is to try and find ways to to. Find a practical use or a practical application of this type of training so that, you know, you could use it in the real world, whether it's at an athletics track, whether it's, you know, on in a velodrome or it's just going out on your bike. Uh, so, you know, whether you'll have, you know, blood flow restricted cycling shorts with a sort of small pump inside it and you put those on for your winter bike ride, that might be the future. <laughs>
0: Mm, yeah um what else uh, is there anything else that we've missed on 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 this topic that you want to to discuss
1: um i think I well i think i've covered everything uh I th- I th- um. if if we summarize like
0: where things are it's probably not something that right now is available to uh, to most, or or any listeners, really, are are there any practitioners that are actually like out of the maybe from the from the academic side, but have started their own practices where they're implementing this? Is this something that can be that people can experiment with by finding a, a good practitioner, uh, other than of course participating in a in an actual study?
1: I I, th- I think so. Yes, I, I think. Well, I I don't know to be honest, but I, I guess what I want to say in, in that question. I think you need to be careful. Okay. I, what I don't want to have is, is, you know, athletes or your listeners going out with a, with a, with a, I don't know, a, a belt or something that you might put around your trousers and stick that around your thigh to see if that works. I think that would be dangerous. I think, I think there's still a lot to know about the safety aspect of this type of training intervention and, and there's some great work to suggest that, you know, it is relatively safe, but there are inherent risks to it. Um, so, you know, don't sort of go out and start doing it in the gym. Uh, I think practitioners, I don't know if I'm honest, uh, you know, I, I've chatted to a few, you know, I chat to Connor every now and then uh, and whether they're using it in their you know, they're sort of high level athletes. I don't know. They haven't, they haven't said. Um, I think we still, there's still a lot more to know about whether it is uh, applicable yet. And, you know, we're trying to, trying to get funded to do this, this, this work. I'm collaborating with a, with a blood flow restricted device company because they're interested in things like this as well. So I think over the next five years, there may be, some commercially available type devices that that might get traction and might be available to athletes once we've worked out the nitty gritty of of its 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 you know its optimization its safety and its benefit
0: yeah uh, and one other thing to to keep in mind though is that when we see devices or services coming out quite often you you have these sort of early wave of hype if you want to call it that so we might it might precede actually having real good evidence for what the functional like really eff- eff- effective protocol is and uh, and how how effective it is. So, so it's something to uh, to be mindful of when like if we start seeing uh, these products and services popping up that still check in like what is the uh, the. The state of the current uh, evidence in in the literature.
1: I th- I think you're absolutely right. I-, I think you know in terms of endurance performance, endurance adaptation. You know the literature is is very limited. Uh, you know there's there's probably you know, a dozen studies that have that have addressed endurance type adaptations, whether it's uh, capillary supply, mitochondrial function, and the the, the types of exercises that these studies have used are are mixed you know some are, are done still using well using resistance type exercise we've done a couple of studies with the sprint interval exercise there's a there's half a dozen studies using you know endurance moderate intensity type exercise so so the the, the evidence base is very small uh and i think you know there's there's a there's a desire to to understand it a little bit more understand the mechanisms understand the the, the 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 does it work for performance understanding the practical application of it and understanding the safety of it so you know there's there's a huge body of work to be done yeah
0: all right. Well, let's move into the rapid fire questions. And these are quick and short. Uh, I think just one sentence to answer them. And the first question is, what's your favorite book, blog or resource related to endurance sports?
1: Uh, uh... I I do have a few favourite books, uh, and I'm a cyclist. So my my background, just to sort of uh, tell you, is I'm I'm, I am a cyclist. I've I've been cycling for since I was about fourteen or fifteen. I dabbled in triathlon for a few (laughs) for for a few years, and and did do some iron distance uh, events and so on. I haven't got a great engine, so I wasn't particularly good. But all my books are sort of cycling related i love accounts of the tour de france and things like that so the books uh, there's a great one race for mad men by chris sidewells and slaying the badger which is the account of the greg lamond bernardino battle in the 86 tour de france by richard moore so they're really nice books i think my, I, if, if you don't mind i've got three favorites though because these are yeah. really sort of you know uh, uh, inspired me is probably the wrong thing but they they fascinated me. I thought A Rough Ride by Paul Kimmage was absolutely brilliant when it first came out in I think 87 when he first sort of spat in the soup as it were about uh, you know the the sort of illicit stuff going on in the Tour de France I thought that was fantastic. I thought Laurent Fignon's autobiography uh We were young and carefree was was Sublime, it was poetic, and it was cutting, and I thoroughly enjoyed it and I think my favorite book though I have to say, and I use this in some of my lectures to be fair, is uh, the Secret Race by Tyler Hamilton, which is his brutal and uncompromising account of the you know the the ePO era with Lance Armstrong and so on. I think that the dirt and the and the and the grime that was Sort of bought out by in that period was you know it's, it's unpleasant to read, but it, it was it was fascinating, so you know <laughs> it's quite an an unusual choice as an endurance physiologist and a, and, a, and a scientist to 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 choose but I thought those books were brilliant
0: perfect and what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success
1: um I guess I, well. How do you define success? I think I'm fairly successful. I don't think I'm setting the world alight. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I think what uh I... Aspire to is, is ensuring that there's a, I have a solid work life balance, uh, particularly in the current situation. So, you know, having supported by a, you know, a loving family and, and, and seeing the kids and all that kind of stuff and, you know, making sure you find time for those, for the, you know, for that. I think it's really important, uh, that, you know, uh, that's probably why I haven't sort of published 25 papers a year because, you know, I'm, 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 uh, I'm trying to find a, a good solid work life balance. And I always find time to exercise. You know, you said just before you started to record this, you'd just been out on the bike. As soon as I've finished this this podcast, I'm going to go out on the bike. So there's no excuse. Always find some time to exercise, uh, get out on the bike, get out for your runs uh and you know in many respects that's when my best when the best ideas pop into my mind i'm tootling along having a nice ride i might have a coffee and a cake and then that idea pops in uh into my mind whilst you sort of you know you're in that zone as as it were so work-life balance
0: and who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you
1: uh that's a great question hard to say um i think in terms of personalities, I I found a lot when reading the books of uh, Sir Ranulph Fines. I don't know if you know Sir Ranulph Fines, He's one of our great sort of living explorers. In yeah, I, in, I
0: have his book here in my bookshelf as well. Oh, one yeah. His so book,
1: his his books. I mean, he's written loads, but. When I was young, uh, he, he, he wrote the, to the ends of the earth, which is when he described the, his circumpolar navigation, you know, which took sort of three years to go around from pole, po- pole to pole. I thought that was just outstanding. And then another book sort of aligned with that was when he, he wrote his book, uh, about his journey across the an- a- Antarctic. So that longest, uh, an un, uh, un, unsupported journey across the Antarctic with with Mike Stroud, so they're the kind of things that inspire me. Um, you know, their their lust for adventure. Um, and even Mike's book, I don't know if you've read Mike Stroud's book, where he describes his journey with with Ronald Fiennes. There's some great physiology in that as well. There's an appendix where they'd they'd done some physiological studies of that. I think it was a 79 day journey. Uh, that was really cool. But it wasn't just the you know the sort of the adventure state of it it was the the behavioral as- aspect uh, between those two guys when when they when they went on on that journey you know their their sort of relationships so I guess that kind of stuff in in inspires me you know those kind of adventurer um sort of stories.
0: Yeah uh, I I think that another book that you would uh, enjoy would be Kilian Jornet's Above the Clouds and uh, well, I you may be following him but but all the things that he's done with the uh, Everest record and and things like that would oh, yes. be right in that bucket.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, brilliant.
0: All right. Well, finally, where can the listeners follow your updates on things that you're studying and so on like Twitter and ResearchGate what what are the best outlets?
1: Yeah, I, I, I have a Twitter and account. Uh, I have a twi- tw- Twitter account. It's, it's, it's not that extensive. I've, I think I've got about a thousand followers. So yes, it's, uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, I do have, uh, a, a research gate, uh, um, account. So I, you know, I try and sort of keep that as up to date as I can. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're my main two out, uh, public outlets.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much, Richard, for uh, sharing uh, your knowledge with us and uh, taking the time to to come on the podcast. It's uh, much appreciated.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. I've I've really enjoyed it.
0: I hope that you enjoyed that interview. Uh, As this episode comes out, which is uh, a couple of months, almost three months after we actually conducted the interview, because I have been Uh, loading up on interviews through the autumn and then releasing them gradually Uh, richard now has a brand new review article that has been accepted for publication in the journal experimental physiology it's not online yet but it could be any moment maybe even when you listen to this episode so i would say follow richard on twitter and I'm sure you'll be notified when that review article is up. I got an advanced copy of it, and I have to say it is super interesting reading and summarizes all the research, the the state-of-the-art in blood flow restricted training. So uh, so that is really great, really interesting. And as the final takeaway message, I do want to read part of the abstract to that review article and summarize what we already discussed in the interview through that. So so here it is. Uh, It reads... Blood flow-restricted exercise represents an approach to potentially augment the adaptive response to training and improve performance in endurance-trained individuals. When combined with low-load resistance exercise, low- and moderate-intensity endurance exercise, and sprint interval exercise, BFR can provide an augmented acute stimulus for angiogenesis and mitochondrial biogenesis. These augmented acute responses can translate to enhanced capillary supply and mitochondrial function and subsequent endurance type performance although this may depend on the nature of the exercise stimulus there is a requirement to clarify whether bfr training interventions can be utilized by high performance endurance athletes within their structured training program so that's it that's a good summary i think of what we discussed some personal thoughts as well in terms of the practical application for most of us athletes is that it's probably not a concept that is ready for prime time yet. But despite that, it's always interesting to learn more about the latest developments in research. And new concepts like this can also help us better understand just exercise physiology and endurance adaptations in general. And that can be applied in coaching or training planning, regardless of whether the concept itself is used or not. So that's something that I wanted to to mention as well. You can find the show notes for the episode on scientifictriathlon.com and you can find links there to Richard's profiles on Twitter, ResearchGate and Loughborough University web page, as well as a link to a related episode, which is episode 87, blood flow restriction training with Brendan Scott. That was way back in the day. On Thursday, we have another Q&A coming out, and next Monday, I do cycling coach Colin Moore. Do subscribe to the podcast so that you always get the latest episodes as they are released. Finally, if you are looking for training plans or coaching services, go and check out scientificdrafflon.com. We have options for you there, and uh, we hope that we can help you achieve your training and racing goals in 2021. Big thanks to our sponsors, Roca that you can find on roca.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash TTS. And thank you to Senate. Use the Senate swim trainer to improve your technique, power, and stamina, even when you don't have time to go to the pool or pools are closed. And do that while practicing good core activation thanks to the engineered instability of the swim bench. Get 20% off your order of the swim trainer with the promo code that you can get on zen 8 forward slash ETS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.